0: Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was
1: gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. Alright? I have no idea what it's about and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis?
0: (laughs) It's required reading.
1: With Tom and Stella, episode one of Mice and Men. Guys like us that work on ranches are the loneliest guys in the world. They got no family, and they don't belong no place. They got nothing to look ahead to. But uh, not us, George. Tell uh, about us. Now. Well, we ain't like that. No. We got a future. We got we got somebody to talk to that gives a damn about us. If them other guys gets in jail, they can rot for all anybody cares. But not us, George, because I see, I got you to look after me, but then you got me to look after, but uh, George, tell about how it's going to be. And welcome to the very first episode of Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we are going to take a pretty thorough look at one work of literature that we've both read and render our critique and judgment as to whether or not it's really worthy of its reputation. But before we start, introductions are in order. Uh, I'm Tom Panneries. You may remember me from such podcasts as In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nam, and Pop Culture Affidavit. And joining me for this and every episode of Required Reading is the host of Batgirl, The Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast, and the Mabel to my dipper, <laughs> Stella.
0: Hello! Hello!
1: This is this is going to be interesting.
0: It will be interesting because we can barely contain ourselves on one episode of either of our shows, and now we're going to be together every month.
1: (laughs) And not only that, we don't do this. This is sort of a semi. We're not getting paid for this, but there's a semi-professional aspect to this because both of us are teachers, and um, you know, and both of us are are you know use a lot of literature, and I and I teach literature, so it's it's like it's something completely different than what we do uh do otherwise absolutely yeah Yeah. so
0: I think it was a natural progression of things can I give the history of how this
1: oh yeah sure sure
0: because when I tell people I'm I'm about to do this, you know, that I work with, they're like, oh, how did that come about? And it's just the fact that you and I are friends and sometimes we meet for coffee. And, yes, we always talk comics and, you know, sometimes pop culture things like Friends or Mad Men. But for whatever reason, our conversation always devolves or evolves, however you want to think about it, about books. Because I think generally you and I – are reading similar books. Like I'll text you and say, Hey, I just read this. And you would say, Oh, well, I just read that, you know, a week ago. Yeah. And so, you know, after one of our, our coffee, uh, meetings in the summer, you had just come up with this idea like, what do you think about a literature podcast? And I thought, well, it's obviously the correct choice. And yes, it makes absolute sense that we need to do something like this.
1: Yeah. And it partially came out of something that I've been doing um, for the last couple of years now, which is uh, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I just out of I was trying to think of what the motivation was for making the list. And I think it was somebody on this is and, and and if you know me as a teacher on Twitter, somebody on Twitter had said something really obnoxious and it annoyed me, which tends to happen when you're when you're in the sort of education world of Twitter. About how kind of pushing this line that you and you hear it if if you if you um if you're a teacher and you you're around enough people who don't teach but seem to have ideas about education, about how it all starts with letting students choose what they want to read. And how there's and and there are a lot of people who are very extreme in that review and that that you shouldn't assign literature. And um I I kind of sit in the middle where there's some really interesting stuff that students would choose, but then again, you always have to be on the lookout for the fact that a lot of students tend to either make really bad choices, or um, will always, when given a choice, will always choose the easiest way out. Right, and so they'll 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 claim they don't have never read the book, or they try to pick something way below level. Um, you know, a tenth grade honors student should not be reading The Outsiders as an independent novel in a tenth grade honors classroom. The Outsiders is an excellent novel, and it's something we'll probably cover on this show. But it's not, you know, it's not for somebody who, who's a, about to step into the world like AP Lit. You know, what I mean, mm-hmm. so 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 that was my kind of counterpoint. And then I started to think about, you know, and and the same people have this attitude of like, you know, how teachers kill reading and schools kill reading and and all that. And and I started to think about the books that. You know, I read in junior high and high school and I was like, well, did that really happen to me? And so, I actually went back into my memory, which has this weird habit of I have to put my car keys in the same place every night so that I don't forget where they are. Yet, I could remember from memory the vast majority of books I read in both junior high and high school, which is kind of a feat considering I started junior high school in the fall of 1989 and I graduated high school in the spring of 1995. So it's not like this was recent. Um, so I started going through the books and I started reading them. And, and there have only been maybe a couple where I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't have to read this again, but most of them have held up pretty well. And I thought this would be a great idea for a podcast. And then as you were saying, we had that conversation, and you put together your list, and so we've got these huge lists that we're cross-referencing. And yeah. our rule of thumb is kind of each episode. At the end of every episode, one of us will announce the next episode's book, and that's and and just a peek behind the curtain. We put together discussion questions for each other and mm-hmm. and things like that. So I um so to bring it into our first book, um, I chose John Steinbeck's novel. Of mice and men, and in every episode we're going to have a little of a, of a plot synopsis, um, with which will have spoilers. So just kind of be fair warned if you're somebody who's never read the book, you know we are gonna we are gonna give away a, a lot of the things, a lot of the endings. Of mice and men was originally published in 1937, uh, written by John Steinbeck, who is easily one of the great American authors of the 20th century, uh, and I've I've read. I've read like four or five of his books it was it was pretty interesting, and uh, before I get into the plot, I just wanted to i mean, I'll let you go first because i've I've been talking long enough here um to ask like you know did you is this your first time reading this book or did you read this when you were younger and and what did you know about the book before going into it you know what's your what's your background with of mice and men
0: absolutely uh this is not the first time that I've read it. The second time, I read it when I was a sophomore in high school, so this was actually a required reading for me, and I remember also seeing the movie after we had—my teacher's name was Mr. Mustard, Uh,
1: would you believe? (laughs) Was he a colonel?
0: (laughs) No, his first name is not Colonel. Uh, And I remember watching the film with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich afterwards, and recently, two years ago— Every summer, I go up to New York City and see either a play or uh, a musical, mm-hmm. and I happen to see uh, *Of Mice and Men*. Uh, James Franco was in it, and um, yeah. I'm trying to think of the, the 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 guy who played Lenny, and it's now escaped me. Um, he's he's a comedic actor more than what he what was what he was playing at Lenny, but uh, that was very interesting to see it on stage. So, yeah, so I'm not new to this. It was a great refresher, and uh, I think for the most part I remembered everything that happened, but it was nice to go through and really look at the details. And I think every time you read something, you pick out something new. So it was great to revisit this novel.
1: All right. Um, Yeah, I read this in high school as well. Um, And uh, Chris O'Dowd is –
0: Yes, that's who it was. Thank you.
1: By the way, I – Thank you, thank you, Google. Um, yeah, I read this in high school. I read this as a freshman, um, and uh, my I I distinctly remember reading this in class, and my English teacher reading portions of it aloud. Mister v- Mister Valenti read portions of it aloud, and did the did like voices.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So and I and I think if you ask like most of us, my friends and I who had him, that's one of the things we absolutely remember about um about the book and about him in the book in that class. And to his credit, you know, he kind of did Lenny in a very um oh, that that dog on Looney Tunes. Which way okay. did he go, George? Which way did yeah. he go? Very, very close to that, but at the same time, he was able to get the gravity of this book across because it's not a comedic book. Mm-hmm. So you know, whatever we found humorous at the very beginning when he started, as you go through the book and it's more and more serious, it was you know the, there was it we got it was one of the ones that I remember the most from ninth grade, which is a year we read some some pretty decent literature. Um, but I think that and I think it's what a lot of us remember the most. Um we did the the I read this so long ago, the movie version with John Malkovich and Gary Sinise had not been made yet. Oh. <laughs> um and uh, there was a television movie with Randy Quaid as Lenny, but I don't remember who played uh who played um George. And uh, so that's what we watched as well. But even then, I had the fortune of not of having a couple of years worth of English teachers where they didn't show movie versions of things. So um, either because they just didn't have the time or they just didn't want to. And, and that was, that was nice. I think ninth grade and, and 12th grade were the exceptions to that. So we watched that and then we would watch, you know, we'd have our ritual viewing of the slightly dirty version of Romeo and Juliet and, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, But yeah, it was one of the books I remember the most. And this was, and, and I, and I, as I was, Jotting down notes for this episode, I jotted down that I've read um, one, two, three, four, including this one, two, three, four, five, six books by Steinbeck. Um, not on two of them on purpose, um, but the rest of them because I had either been assigned them or, or what. So I've read The Red Pony, The Pearl, um, this. Uh, the Grapes of Wrath, East of Eden, and then Travels of Charlie in Search of America. So um, I really do like his writing, though. So that's one of the reasons I picked it up. Uh, but yes, this is my second time reading it as well. And I agree with you. Um, you. You read something like this again, and you get something else out of it, either because you've gained some perspective and age, mm-hmm. or you are... Um- <laughs> Or it's just because you've noticed things you didn't the first time around. So Alright. So we're gonna get into um a very quick plot overview and then uh then we'll get into into our discussion of, of the book. So here we go. Of mice and men is the story of George Milton and Lenny Small, two migrant farm workers in Depression Era, California. George is a bit quick-tempered, but a caring companion to Lenny, who is big, strong, and mentally challenged. Uh, what in those days would have been referred to as either simple or maybe even retarded—I don't know what the parlance for mentally challenged was back in the in the during the Depression. Lenny is usually the cause of their troubles. When the book begins, the two of them have been run out of town a town because something of something Lenny did. Lenny's focus in the le- in life is the story that George repeatedly tells him about how they, when they get enough money, they will get a place of their own and Lenny will tend their garden and pet rabbits. Lenny loves to pet soft things. The pair are on their way to their next job as the novel opens. They camp for a night near a riverbed and George chides Lenny for not being able to control himself and he tells him that if he gets into trouble again, to come back here to the riverbed and hide in the brush where they are. They arrive at the job, which is on a farm. Lenny is very good at the job. George goes to the great pains to try and make sure that he keeps his mouth shut so as not to reveal how simple or dumb he really is we meet slim carlson and candy who are fellow workers as well as curly a short man with an obvious napoleon complex curly is married to a very sexy woman who's also very flirtatious something that bothers him greatly and fuels a vicious and sometimes violent jealous streak george and candy bond over george's house slash land idea And it seems that it may actually happen if Candy gets in on it because they'll have the money between the three of them. Well, that is until one fateful night when Lenny despondently sits in the barn holding a dead puppy whose neck has been broken. He had accidentally snapped the neck because he was being too rough with the puppy and and the puppy had tried to bite him. Curly's wife then shows up and makes a move on him, allowing Lenny to pet her hair. He does... But then she gets nervous, and she tells him to stop. This causes Lenny to panic, and he holds onto her hair tighter. She begins to scream, so he covers her mouth because he's afraid of getting into trouble. In the previous town, he had be- caressed the fabric of a woman's dress, and when she screamed, he yelled on, and she accused him of rape. He winds up sn- basically snapping her neck. Seeing what he's done, Lenny runs to the brush by the riverbed. The men and George see what Lenny has done and grab their guns. George heads to the brush and finds Lenny who is racked with guilt over having gotten into trouble once more. He asks George to tell him the story about the farm and the rabbits, and George does so. As he's telling the story, he takes out a gun and shoots Lenny, killing him. And that's a brief overview. There's other details, but we'll we'll get in there. Um I think before we really get into our um, you know, kind of heavier questions and heavier topics of of the uh of the book, I think it's just helpful to talk about, you know, did you like it? <laughs> what did you think of it? I mean, it, it's it should I, that's always a good place to start because I think so. <sighs>
0: yeah, yeah. I I do really enjoy this, um, and I guess not to show my hand too much, but I, I see it as a really beautiful story, in my opinion. Uh, obviously. <laughs> the- the ending is not the happiest, but just the the journey and the companionship between these two very different men. And clearly one would be better off without the other, but the fact that he stays with him and that. He takes ownership of him to a certain extent and, and puts him down by his own. I feel like that's a very loving act. Um, however, you know, violent it may be, and uh, you know, we could certainly disagree about it. But overall, I, I think it's great. I think it's uh, an interesting picture of uh, life back then, life for a migrant farmer, the different characters that you would come in contact with, and their various stories and everything uh, but overall yeah I I recommend this book for anyone and I mean it's it's a short read you know like if I wanted to I could have read it in one day but I, I was taking my time and um, sort of spacing it out over a couple days but uh, I think it's it's well worth its place in in literature
1: yeah it's it's um it's a it's a novel but it's almost like the length of like a novella it's it's right yeah I, I don't even think it, it's it goes past 150 pages if that Mm -hmm. um and uh you're right you're right about about the companionship between these two and then that that lends on a time in our history where men like them were struggling literally day to day uh to to make money or to earn a living and then you have a view on a um uh, lower social class of people, uh, you know, people who, you know, who aren't, uh, who aren't very well off and, and have that, you know, one of the things we'll talk about a little bit is the, the whole, that whole idea of the American dream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I agree with you about the ending there. There's, there's a companionship and a love between these two men. And then it's, I don't know if, if this sounds, if it's the wrong way to phrase it, but there's almost an act of compassion in what George does in killing his friend because mm-hmm. of the fact that the the there's a, basically a mob after him, right? You know, Curly basically rounds everybody up, and they're gonna go. They're gonna tear this guy apart. Now, it would have been a long fight. Lenny is not. Lenny's a. Yeah. Lenny's a very. Lenny is, is portrayed to be a very big man. A very very big man with like that's like when he puts his hand over Curly's wife's mouth he he covers her nose and her mouth like it, it just mm-hmm. this massive meat hook of a hand and um, so he would have clearly put up a very long fight but but George doesn't want that sort of indignity to happen to his best friend and and he just he you're I think it was a very very good way to phrase it he puts him down mm-hmm. um, and which makes it such a tragic tragic story, but you're right. There, there, there's something to be said about the way that certain literature like this plays up the journey that these characters go through rather than what happens to them at the end that makes it the most worth it.
0: Absolutely. You know?
1: Um, yeah. D- what did you, did you think, um, um, so getting into the characters, uh, we'll start with George and Lenny and, um, Lenny is, uh, as I was saying in the beginning of my my, beginning of my my summary, is that even when I was in high school, the, the term "mentally retarded" was still a socially acceptable term. Mm-hmm. It's really fallen out of favor over the last like decade or two. That that um, it is not, it is officially not used. It's been dropped by um, the American Psychological Association or you know, whoever whoever is uh, in charge of these things federally. And uh, if you're those of us who are teachers, when you um, when you come across students who are special ed. Have special ed accommodations, and have IPs, which are plans that, that help them with accommodations and things. The term mentally retarded used to be on those. It is no longer there. So it is not a term that is used. But, but I think it, in common, a lot of people still recognize that term. Um, is this a you know, is this a is this a fair? I mean, one of the things that has been it has been um, challenged over the years. It's been challenged over the years in, in many different places, um, mainly because of its vulgar language. The the N word appears a couple of times. Other racial slurs are in there. GD and things. I'm going to try to keep this PG, so I won't curse too much. And the profanity is one of the things. And then. Uh, Lurid passages about sex, uh things like that. But is this respectful to those who are mentally challenged or is Lenny a caricature? That's something that I've I've wondered um both times that I've I've read it. Or is it up to our interpretation as to whether or not, you know, he's certainly a sympathetic character.
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: what what do you think about of that about
0: that? Yeah, I don't <sighs> I guess when I think of caricature, I I sort of take it as like a a negative connotation. Like, Mm -hmm. are we meant to look down on Lenny, Uh, if that's sort of how how you're phrasing it? And my interpretation, my reading of it is no. Um, I think he does make mistakes as, you know, he, I guess, with anyone in that position um, or mind – (laughs) A mental capability, you know, make mistakes. I I don't think anything like over the top happens that he does uh, because when he's doing these things like breaking people and hurting them, it's not only because of his strength and I think not being able to control it, which while you were giving your little (laughs) – your synopsis, I was thinking, wow, this is kind of like what would happen if Superman couldn't control his powers kind of thing thing yeah 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 Uh, you you know kind of like that and he's he very much loves uh soft things so that's you know what gets him into trouble and i think that's certainly similar to um certain people like i know um some people on the not asperger's but the autism like Spectrum. spectrum yes they are fixated on certain things it could be uh Colors, it could be a uh, feeling, uh, uh, you know, sensory, some mm-hmm. sort of sensory thing. So I felt like, oh, OK, you know, I, I feel like this is pretty compassionate in its in its uh, depiction of someone who would be undergoing that. And I think he is also an amazing character because I think he is able to sort of bolster um, George's character. Mm hmm. Um, not just that he's a a plot point or a a mere tool for that, but I think that through Lenny, you get to see a softer side of George because, you know, we first meet him and George is yelling at Lenny. So you think like, oh gosh, what an abusive relationship. But you actually realize how patient George is. and, And I think in those quiet moments around the campfire, you also see that George is also regretful of the times that he speaks harshly of him and and their past and everything together. And, you know, let's not forget also with Lenny that despite forgetting several things, he he always remembers sort of the mantra of, you know, their dream and and what the Uh goal is and the rabbits. But he also remembered where to go. And that, yeah. that was not repeated as often as the mantra. And so even though he had forgotten certain things like don't do this, don't do this, he also just a couple of times it was repeated that if you get in trouble, you need to come back here. So I think it also shows – I think – it could have been really terrible, like, how he would have ended up if he were a caricature. But I think this, this is a respectful portrayal of someone who is uh, mentally handicapped or disabled.
1: Yeah, and this is something that you, you um, at least in, in my experience, as somebody who teaches, it, it, you know, in, in a public high school. So I, I do come across students who are, you know, on the spectrum where they, they are um, in a special classroom because mm-hmm. of, of their severe Disability or whatever, uh, you do often wonder because they, they, they're this basically the law is that by a certain age they cycle out. Mm-hmm. And you wonder you do wonder like what, you know, we don't get a lot about what, what happens to them after, you know, after their childhood and, you know, how do they, how do they function day to day in society? And, you know, every, every so often, occasionally you do get a, a movie or a book that, that deals with that issue. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's, it's very respectful and sometimes it's overdone and sometimes it's Forrest Gump and, um, you know, and it's, but you're right about this. It's like, it's interesting to see here is somebody who already has something, um, keeping him, has a roadblock Mm -hmm. in front of him. And then you have to add to the fact that it's the it's the, the depression. Mm-hmm. Um it is he is poor. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's not he's not treated very well by anybody but George. And George George is like an older sibling or um kind of parent-like in some regard Mm -hmm. in that like when you tell a little kid this is really important if you are ever in trouble i want you to do this like this is gonna sound so like stranger danger and those sorts of things they were they well they remember those things oh
0: absolutely yeah
1: you know like like, for instance i have a nine-year-old tonight my wife was in the shower i had to run out to the store to get something i said hey buddy i'm gonna i'm going out to the store i'm gonna lock the the front door and he just said okay i won't i won't answer it if the doorbell rings (laughs) nobody and granted my doorbell ring doesn't ring that often it's usually somebody like you know it's usually one of his little friends or it's somebody selling something you know like hey i noticed you have trees in your yard this is my tree service lately it's been political pollsters but but like i didn't even have to tell him that so like you know kids remember those sorts of things and with with lenny it's Lenny and George, it's um, there's a similar relationship in Rain Man. If it's been years since I've seen all of Rain Man, but Rain Man is, it's you know, I mean, there's a there's a different dynamic there, and there's there's a totally different, a lot different story. But like you have that sort of one person essentially taking care of the other person, yet getting frustrated with him at the same time, and 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 but feeling guilty. Because there are parents out there who are stern to their kids and they feel like they're building character by being, you know, by being stern. Because, you know, my, my daddy hit me. And you're like, well, you're not. But this isn't 1955. Um, but at the same time, George genuinely feels guilty for the fact that he yells at Lenny on occasion. and, and the, But unfortunately, it's sometimes it's the only way to get through to Lenny. But Lenny feels and just, you know, or, or it's the only way for him to express himself.
0: Yeah. I uh, just to go off that Rainmaker thing, I actually had, you know, experience with in, I guess, first through fifth grade or so. I had a really good friend and he was like very close with uh, a mentally handicapped Kid that we, uh, that student that also mm-hmm. went to that school. And so in the classes and the joint classes that we would have, because obviously he would be in other classes, mm-hmm. um, you would always see them together and he would be very protective of him. And they weren't related. So I, I certainly see that. I do want to push you on something you said. He sure. said that he wasn't treated well by others. Do you mean on the farm? Cause yeah, I on the farm. Disar- Why well, sort of disagree with you?
1: Is it with the exception of maybe candy?
0: OK, well, I mean, they do say, like, shoot, he's crazy. He? and yeah. But they're also, I think, in awe of his strength and they call him a good worker and, you That's know, true. they tell him to protect himself and stay away from Curly and things like that. So, I, I mean, they probably don't treat him the same as George. They wouldn't let him play in their reindeer games slash poker. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't know. I feel like they don't look. Do you feel like they?
1: No, I, I stand. I mean, I just stand corrected a little bit because it is this sort of idea of and and. I, that's I think maybe that's part of Steinbeck making things three dimensional, mm-hmm. because you could and, and you know, like I said, I was I was working off a very vaguely worded synopsis, so you know, um, so it's good that, that that's why we're that's why we're partners here. Um, <laughs>
0: no, I mean I don't want to.
1: <laughs> no, 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 you're not. I'm not. No, I'll
0: be like you're wrong. I'm just no, saying no. that like in my perception, my I I just disagreed a little
1: bit. Uh, But but I think but now that I start to think about it,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. you're right. And the the angle about them being like, oh my God, look at this guy work, Mm -hmm. and you know that's what they're there to do. Mm -hmm. And they're all trying to earn their pay, and they're in awe of him, and he impresses them. And they're not on the level of protective him as protective of him as George is, Mm -hmm. but they do seem to accept him to the point where you're right. They do tell to, him to look out with Curly, but there's always, there always does seem to be the one person or the few people around every situation he's been in that don't treat him well, which is why George has, it's almost like a defense mechanism for him saying, now you need to keep your mouth shut mm-hmm. to a certain point. Cause I want to make sure that we get this job, you know, like in other words, um, you know, I, I and maybe maybe it's just a reflex for George because he's been through this so many times. I don't know how much I can trust him, and you no, know, but you are right. And that that makes the whole situation a little more three dimensional because there is a possibility that a story like this could be about everybody shunned him but his one friend. <laughs> You know, tonight on the Hallmark Channel, you know, and but you know what I mean? Like it could go uh-huh. very, very down that road and become almost saccharine in the way it, the what portrays that, that friendship. But yeah, it, it's it is a lot more well-rounded. So,
0: yeah, in a way, yeah. I guess I think that strength is like a, a characteristic that really needed to be there in order to make him a more fleshed out character, because I think if he didn't have it, then we would potentially think of him as as a caricature. Yeah. And it wouldn't be as positive as I think both of us are perceiving his character. So I think that is sort of the saving grace for him to sort of, quote unquote, normalize
1: him. Yeah. Does George feel an obligation to him? Did you get that feeling that that there's something that that he feels? I know he gets frustrated. Mm-hmm. And I know that even if he's not outwardly expressive of it, in the back of his mind, he must think it every once in a while. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yet he stay like Lenny stays with him, and he's and he's with Lenny until the end. Mm-hmm. And he's and he, you know, he does what he does. What What do you think is his motivation?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because he does have that whole narrative to, I think, Candy after the initial lie of that they were related. Yeah. Um, he talked about how he and his friends used to make fun of uh, Lenny and they – would make him do you know stupid stuff and laugh at him and everything and then after a while sort of i think that the guilt and the shame from these acts sort of washed washed over him and he started to have it uh, a change of heart so i th- think initially there may have been some of that like i need to you know, apologize or, or make good on, on what I had and done. To like work to off you. my guilt. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. Um, that I, you know, I injured you and I injured, you know, this, our little community here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think there is probably still some. Resentment, because you know he does bring up the fact that I could do all of this stuff if I didn't have you. I wouldn't be in trouble. I'd have everything. But the fact that he is with him, that he protects him, the very last act of love that I think he he commits, I think there is a special bond. That I think it's it's not. Um, I need to do this, but I want to do this after a while. I think that, you know, there is a love relationship Uh um, between the two of them. And, you know, it could come out of a mutual need because I feel like apart from each other, George would be a very lonely human being. And I Uh think this whole – I mean if you look at the cast of characters anyways – there's a lot of lonely individuals here. Yeah, I mean, Crowley's wife talks about being lonely. Um, Slim, right? He's the, uh-huh. the, the mule tier. Uh, he talks yeah. about, you know, being lonely and, you know, wishing he could talk with other people. And really everyone's sort of an individual even though they're all working together. But I feel like these two are sort of this duo that, that remain together. So I, I think it's – just this love that may have built out of um, apologetics you know for I'm sorry that I was this way and maybe feeling a duty towards him but it it, it evolved into something else
1: yeah there's a true companionship mm-hmm. and and it's and it's not it is a love that you get many times from between siblings um, but they're not they're there they're just best friends and companions that you, you do see these relationships sometimes in life that they're very protective of one another for whatever reason. And, and Mm -hmm. George, George in that, in that regard, there's this maturity between about him that, that he could go from being a jerk to him when they were younger to having Mm -hmm. some, you know, maybe even some empathy for him and uh, yeah and and that's you know that's very very important because that does show a lot of mature that shows a maturation in in, in a human in a person's character when they does this, and the fact that he stays with him you know does show a lot of compassion and then and like i said there there's the, there's a there's a real humanity to this entire novel um and I liked your point about loneliness because mm-hmm. if you think about it you have um a lot a lot of people, like, just for the historical context here, you know, Steinbeck wrote this in 37, so this is probably taking place what was then contemporary to that time, you know? It's not like he's looking back upon the Depression. It's within the last... Few years now, the depression by thirty seven was starting to ease a little bit. Um, you know, it was almost like they, they were kind of turning things in the right direction, and then the war would come along and fully lift us out. But you know, it wasn't. It, there were still migrant workers going around the country, and these guys and and some of the the hobos were robbing trains and things. Yeah. They were living hand to mouth, mm-hmm. and um, you see it more, and you see the desperation. That could come from this sort of um, life, this subsistence sort of life in The Grapes of Wrath, um, which granted The Grapes of Wrath is a mammoth novel It is two, three times the size of Of Mice and Men. So you have there's a lot more that Tom Jode and his family can do within that space and a lot more that Steinbeck can explore than with these two people. But you're right. All these people, they're lonely because they basically, they drift from town to town and they pick up work where they can and they try to stay as long as they can to make money. But, you know, um, one of the things that that's important to notice that they're almost like constantly in debt to whomever is paying their check because um, a lot of those migrant farms, they would hire them seasonally or like there was essentially temp work. It didn't pay particularly well. Um, if it was, if there was, a, I don't know if there was a minimum wage back, minimum wage back then. Um, if there was, it was low and they were probably paying them under, off the books under the table lower, which a lot of people have gotten in trouble for over the years with, you know, micro farmers now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of these farms had a store where you could buy food but the farm owned the food, or the the, the the foreman and the people who were running the farm or the running the factory where they're working own they basically owned the town, they owned the, they owned the uh, store, so you were getting paid and then paying them back. Um, it was basically a, like a, a self-perpetuating cycle that you never actually made money. And that you you were just basically always beholden to them because they were giving you your paycheck and then then you were buying food from them and you were buying your subsistence off of them so it could probably get very very lonely because there was just no it didn't seem like it was ever gonna end and you know I, I don't know have any statistics on crime or anything like that, but there was also a very sort of Every man for himself. You have to watch out for yourself. Sort of mentality, mm-hmm. which makes George and Lenny kind of an anomaly. And um, I think some of the some of the their workers who they become friends with do sort of notice that.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. Because I mean, when Lenny gets in trouble, George could have just ran away that previous town and left him there.
1: Mm-hmm. And he could have run away. Um, he could have run away when uh, when he killed Curly's wife as well. Yeah, you know he could he could have left him to die. There was you know, um, you know there was nothing that George was guilty of in that in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's such a sad it's it's a sad scene mm-hmm. when he kills when he's sitting there with the puppy. Yeah. Um, and then it becomes it it's legitimately scary when he kills her. Because you see this scene slowly develop, and Steinbeck Steinbeck writes very simply, but it's not so simple that it he he leaves out the details and thinks he's just succinct. And that's what I've always loved about John Steinbeck's writing. He is he is vivid, but he is succinct in the way he is vivid and and it it feels like it's happening right before you. Uh, and he doesn't get get himself lost in some of the description of things or he doesn't overwrite the mm-hmm. scene. And, and and that's really, really effective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One last thing just to go on about, you know, how George cares for him. The fact that the one thing George wants is this lovely ending, you know, his, his sort of American dream or his form of it. And he wants to share it with Lenny and it's not just because he wants Lenny's share of the funds, but he like legitimately has plans and, and in his speech and talking to other people, I never perceive that as a lie. Like he would just take it and, and go and that's it. Like I feel like he really believes that it's going to happen mm-hmm. and he wants Lenny to be there. And so I think, you know, you want – if you want someone to take part in the one thing that you truly desire, I think that says something about your relationship.
1: Yeah, I, I I never got the chance throughout this entire novel that this is a story that he tells Lenny just to shut him up. Right. He really believes that they are going to do this. That's why when I mean, he's mm-hmm. talking to Candy about you know and 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 um and Candy's uh, black, I believe.
0: Candy's the old white man. So so Slim, I think, is the yeah the mule tier that right. doesn't really
1: yeah. Okay. So so Candy Candy he brings Candy in on it. You know, he didn't have to bring, you know, like, again, if this was something that George never really thought was going to happen, he would have never told, he would have never been like, you know, actually sat and planned this out with candy, you know? And I know, granted, sometimes people make plans. Well, and of Mice and Men comes from that phrase, the best laid plans right. of mice and men. Yep. Um, and I know it has an ending to it, but I never remember. I think there's a second half of that phrase, but I can't remember it. And I think it's from John Milton. Um But I should have researched that. I want to say it because I want to say Mr. Valenti told us it was from John Milton. And I don't remember the second half of the expression, but, you know, essentially they're making these plans and the plans go afoul Mm -hmm. um, because of what happens. Um, But the American dream is, is an interesting, I mean, there are so many pieces of literature in the 20th century that take a look at that idea of the American dream and how it, and it very often, how it is, um, I mean, there are there are there are novels that show it being attained, but there are novels that and plays and other works of literature that show it being um, not attained, but struggled for, uh, corrupted, uh, or destroying a person. And you know, off the top of my head, I can think of of a raisin in the sun. Mm. Uh, the death of a salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, and one and and um, one novel that is very contemporary, a little bit contemporary to this, it came out in the prior decade, which is the Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And the Great Gatsby is almost like shows you how there's a corruption within that idea, because Jay Gatsby got where he was in a very underhanded way, and it v- eventually comes. It, all of that comes to back to haunt him, and there's this, you know, there's just uh, we will probably eventually discuss the Great Gatsby on this show because I think both of us really like that novel. I'm not I'm, going to assume that you do, but I, I've always loved that novel. But it, <laughs> I, I immediately, whenever I think of the American Dream, I think of Jay Gatsby, and I think of 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 everything in that novel, and and this one has also has that side of the American Dream where you you have to sit and think to yourself, um. It's really tragic because you know they're never going to get there. It's just – it is – and it's something that we see in and out in our modern society with the cycle of poverty Mm -hmm. that it is – despite what you are told or despite what you are shown or despite what some people very ignorantly believe, it is not very easy Pull yourself out of a situation where you are constantly, constantly in a cycle of poverty. Um, and a book that I think really is a nice companion to this, even though it's a nonfiction book, is Barbara um, Aaron Reich, I think is how you pronounce her last name, uh, Nickel and Dimed, which is – she's a jur- she was a journalist who went, quote, undercover – to work minimum wage jobs for a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. and wrote about it. And, and, and this is back in the late nineties, but wrote about how hard it is to make it in this country on minimum wage. And we have a, we have a very longstanding debate going on in this country. And now about living wage for, for people who work shift work and wage work and things like that. And you know how the cost of living has rapidly out, out exceeded the, um, Pay, and, and how a lot of people are in debt, and and there's there's something I, I see something in that of that in here, And I see that that that's what one of the reasons why this novel holds up because you can I can very well see people like George and Lenny trying to make a living. Um, if it's not farming, it's something else, mm-hmm. but it's like you know job to job day to day or week to week and this hand to mouth sort of living that a lot of people live. I mean, do you see that too or am I just kind of projecting my own
0: No, I, I see it and I mean even like literally transposing this to now, I mean, we still have migrant farmers mm-hmm. and they're still in pretty desperate conditions not necessarily well treated um, just trying to make it Yeah. Um, for the most part I feel like now they, they're immigrants um, or they're they they happen to be um hispanic Mm -hmm. um i feel like i don't really know of any like migrant like white migrants so so like this is interesting i mean i could be wrong um but no i i think that that's very true and um (laughs) i mean every day when i drive home there's also someone standing on the corner looking for some money or some food Mm -hmm. so i I think we are and. (laughs) uh I think you know history is very cyclical, and and so I, I think we're sort of revisiting things just in a in a different way. Um, but yeah, I totally see what you're saying.
1: And and one of the questions that that we kind of asked each other here was, um, is the American dream an I an attainable idea? Mm-hmm. And I and I wrote in um, in pen on my on my printout here. Is it a shifting idea? Mm-hmm. Is is it something? It's a very abstract concept. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I mean, does it mean what it meant nine eighty years ago? Yeah, almost eighty years ago was when this book was written. Um, or is there something you know, or does it does it mean something else, or is it just like you know, from our perspective, does it mean one thing versus? Somebody who is who is Latino or Hispanic, um, who is mm-hmm. a daily, who is a day laborer. I think around here you see more day laborers, yeah, than you see migrant farmers, which are basically very, very much the same thing. So, a day laborer is a more generic term for somebody who may not work on a farm, but they will do construction, mm-hmm, repair right. jobs, roofing. They're they're picked up to work for the day so i think there's a, there's something in that but you're right there's a an enormous minority population especially mm-hmm. hispanic and latino
0: yeah i think it's shift of shiftable in the sense of the idea of what it is i think changes and and i sort of feel like at the end of it it's like what what are our individual ideas of like the good life. That's kind of how I transpose it. Like what, you know, at the end of it, what am I working towards kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if, you know, if I persevere and push on, like, what is the end goal that I want to get to? And I think for each person, it's different. And I think, you know, the times certainly change that. But, you know, the type of person and everything I think is changeable. Um, I, I think people are still looking for, you know, the, the American dream or like the good life, you know, I I think now we're in almost a bad situation with students because I think their idea is like, if I get good grades, I'll get into a good school, I'll get a good job and I'll have money and, you know, then I'll be satisfied. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, it's a little dangerous. Like I I think the American dream is, is also, you know, a dangerous idea to a certain extent, but gosh, I, I just don't know if it's, attainable necessarily because you know you named all these um works of literature that they didn't work out and you know i'm sort of scratching my head to find something that there was one that did work out um i don't know can you think of what i I, I,
1: i'm trying to and what i seem to find is not necessarily in a lot of the literature that we read that's american literature Um, but in many ways, a lot of the, there's a lot of celebrity stories that are held up Mm -hmm. as this sort of, you know, oh, he came from a small town in Ohio and he, and he, and he got onto American Idol, like, and, and, you know, you're talking about like one other flip side of that is like, you know, if I get good grades, I get into a college, I get a good job and I can have the, the, the family, the house, the the the, the the car the whatever and then you get into the whole thing of keeping up with the Joneses which is a whole other part of the aspect of the American dream mm-hmm. that that we, we seem to be stuck in you know the idea that we have to keep accumulating stuff and it has to be you know it's like it's like being in high school and having the right clothes and stuff and that never seems to end but then there's that whole side of it of where you know how many young people today look at the American dream of or measuring success in life right. based on notoriety yes. or fame, mm-hmm. you know, like, will they come back 10 years from now, like, you know, and, and feel that they're not successful in life because mm-hmm. nobody knows who the heck they are. They're not famous for something. Mm-hmm. And and is that is that that is that as much of a perversion of our of our idea as what I mean you know I mean there's nothing to, about that in this novel and I know we're off on a tangent but th- when you were talking about that's so what I was thinking of the sort of no, uh, the well, American Idol aspect of it
0: yeah yeah I think yeah I think that's certainly one you know I, I think of President Obama and I think he, very much he has that sort of um, not really rags to riches but you know the, like the idea that uh, he he grew up and. I think in less than like yeah, he, the, the best means yeah. and now, you know, look at his success and everything. And uh, the headmaster of the school that I work with was in inner city DC and he had a, uh, you know, a troublesome childhood. And now he's, you know, he's got a, he worked for the CIA. He's got, you know, a master's. He's the head of our school. So, I mean, I, I think they exist. I think just, with American, I I feel like can you ever be satisfied though? I feel like you you reach out for it, you're like going for this thing, but do you ever know if you've gotten there? I just wonder, you know, That's if I look point. at George and Lenny, I feel like if they got that farm, I think that. Yes, that would have been it. Because I think that is honestly, they wanted a home. They had the family right there. And and you know, Lenny would have had his rabbits. I think they would have felt successful. And that's, I think it would have been a very beautiful, I think that would have been, honestly, a picture of a good life. But I think with some people, like, it's been a while since I've read Great Gatsby, but I think he was, you know, he reached for it, obviously, like the green light at the end of the dock, the symbolism there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I feel like he felt empty at the end. So, like, there was no contentment or satisfaction. I think that's why the American Dream could potentially be a dangerous idea. And I don't think it is attainable because I think once you feel like you've gotten there, you feel like, oh, no, there, I have to keep on going. But... You know, I or the, don't know
1: or that could the, just be my attribute. No, you're right, because there's that with Gatsby it's that one thing that was missing and that was Daisy. You're right. Yeah He did it all for Daisy and, and, and she and um and in the end it destroyed him. Um and with with Lenny and George, you wonder if, if they had achieved the, the house and the rabbits and the and the garden would that have been it, or would, would would they have felt that there was something else that they needed? You know, was you know, um, and and then I wonder, like you know, um, because we can talk a little bit about Curly. Um, Curly is the short guy, but he's you know he's in charge. Yeah, you know he's you know he's not one of these working schlubs. He's he's management, mm-hmm. for for lack of a better word, and he's got a hot wife. <laughs> and, but no, she is. And that's the thing. And, and this, and, 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 and I think, um, her, her very overt sexuality mm-hmm. is something we should talk about. But he is so insecure mm-hmm. because, like, because maybe, you know, and you don't get a lot of motivation from him beyond the fact that he's very short. So he has the Napoleon complex that's a, cliche at this point um but he's got this beautiful wife and is insanely jealous mm. all the time and perhaps it's because he is he has achieved something perhaps that he dreamed about and is a, is so scared of losing it that he has become insecure and what very often happens is that you Get controlling, you know, like you mm-hmm. know, the, the idea that you you hold on too tight and it slips away. And although he is much more a, he's, I'm 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 painting him in way too sympathetic of a light because he's more slightly more villainous. Yeah, he's uh, he's more abusive as mm-hmm. well, and I don't want to make somebody who's obviously an abusive person seem sympathetic. But but if you're we're talking in the context of the American Dream, that's that's where some of these things can come out. Um, and I don't blame her. I think one of the instincts that, that might come across for some people would to be basically, well, she's a slut. Look at the way she acts, blah, 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 which, mm-hmm. you know, again, I, I'm I'm just trying to see where the logical threads for certain people in the audience might go. But she is very, uh, she's the only, she's really the only woman in the entire book.
0: Yes, she is, and her only identity is linked to Curly because she yeah. doesn't even have a name. It's Curly's wife.
1: It's Curly's wife, um, and yet she is flirtatious, mm-hmm. and everybody's like, "Stay away," because she she she's flirtatious toward both of them, mm-hmm. and George is smart enough to heed the warning of. Stay away from Curly's wife. You know, like everybody else has learned this lesson, mm-hmm. but Lenny, Lenny, unfortunately, is not. But what is it? I mean, what what is the whole meaning of, of her as as a character? Really, because like you yeah. know, she's the whole reason that she's not the whole reason he gets killed. But I mean, he kills her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there? Is what's is Steinbeck trying to say something? Is is she simply a plot device? Um, is this? Denigrating toward women, or is it you know? I mean, is he being, is he being misogynistic? I mean, Steinbeck really excelled with male characters. His some of his female characters are not as, and and a lot of them tend to be of the horror literal in some cases in some of his characters they are bores, or you know you have mother figures and things like that but he has a number of characters who behave very much like Curly's wife um or or use their sexuality in some way or or, or another i mean is is she is she a good example or or is this is, is he being misogynistic
0: yeah this is a good question um Cause I'm somewhat simple. I don't like her as a character until I think you get to know her, in the last chapter of her mm-hmm. life, and then you actually are like, "Oh, okay." But then you also are questioning because she she openly says that she doesn't like curly. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of wonder you know what's going on. i i guess in a way she settled because maybe she saw in him that she could have like a content life yeah um but it it yeah so she was looking for security as well i don't know if this was her idea of the american dream or not uh being with curly um yeah i feel like they do talk to- they toss around do they toss around the hussy do they say hussy i can't I, remember
1: maybe Should they call her that or I not i can't remember but
0: um, I'm the glad. Id- the
1: yeah. idea is certainly there.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I just couldn't remember like the vernacular that they, uh, that mm-hmm. used back then. I, it's interesting because there are women mentioned only two times. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, and then the other time of course is the idea that the men take some of their earnings and go into town, uh, presumably to go to a, a whorehouse. Yeah. Um, so those are the only you know, two times that, that women show up. Um, she's not depicted well, but I'm sort of thinking about – because I'm kind of going back and forth. I don't know if I'm going to give you an answer at all. But I, I think about the fact that they are staying away from her and they're not taking advantage of her because I think there's something to be said about that. They recognize that there's probably – there's something uh, you know amiss, but she's also like easy pickings. If you think about yeah. it, like anyone to a certain extent could have taken advantage of her. But even Carlson, right,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: who is probably the manly man, um, I perceive him as very attractive um, inside mm-hmm. and out. He seems like he's also kind of an, a decent guy. Seems like the one person that Crowley is most threatened by and that you could see him getting together with Crowley's wife. But I don't think anything happens. Um, and the fact that that's true, if it—I it, mean, in my, perspe- in my perception, in my perception and reading this, I feel like no one has actually touched her. Um, no. I, feel, I, I wonder if you could argue that she is just potentially a plot device um, that you know to incite certain characters with Pearly, so you get a picture of who he is, and then of course uh, to have that that tragedy because just having Lenny break a puppy, however innocent that may be, or a rabbit, I I think is is a far cry from breaking a human being uh, and and setting them off. Um, I think in your synopsis, you said that she came on to Lenny. Do you want to defend that? I I don't know if I like – I don't fully 100% disagree with you because I do see her as being flirtatious.
1: Yeah. That's... I also
0: see it as a parallel to the scene where Crooks or whomever wanted – like he didn't want Lenny in there. But then he realized that like actually it was nice to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And she was like – Oh, just emanating loneliness, and so I—I I don't know. I, I mean, she could have been—that could just be her personality, like very flirtatious. But I think it was—I perceive it as—as as different than how she was acting with George, to which she does come on to, yeah. And you know, maybe Carlson. I mean, do you? Again, I don't fully disagree with you, but do you agree with that I, in your synopsis?
1: Um, I think you put it a little more eloquently where where she's she's flirting with him. she's definitely flirting with him in, in places in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly because I think mean, this is sound horrible, but that's kind of her default behavior. Yeah, like that's that's what she knows. But mm-hmm. you're right; she's not as aggressive with him as she is with with George, or maybe some of the other men. Maybe she kind of perceives Lenny's simpleness, but not enough. She didn't perceive his uh, his his personality enough, or know it enough, to realize that um, when she got scared, it was going to make him scared. Mm-hmm. So, but you're right. She she projects this this the sense of loneliness and sadness, and and there are points, or I'm kind of uh, in the same way you are, where I'm on the fence. Where like, there are points where I'm like, well, she is Steinbeck does kind of treat her like a plot device at some mm-hmm. points, or she's the object of of what Curly has, that Curly holds up, mm-hmm. and then uses for control, either over her or over the other guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, but at the same time, you have to. I also think of this is the '30s. This overt sexuality among women was not something perceived as the norm in popular culture. Yeah, you know, there was sexuality. Mhm. But you know, we've seen this character of Curly's wife played out in movies over the last 10 to 20 years in a very very forward way that you wouldn't have seen in um, you know, we we've seen this sort of uh you know, again to Forgive my terminology, but it's a slutty character. Mm-hmm. You know, the one who will jump into bed, and and is even takes it further than the flirting she's doing. So Steinbeck right. is kind of pushing the envelope a little bit here with with his depiction of of her and and uh, her her forwardness. Um, do, you, do
0: you think she might have some low self esteem with how forward she is and the fact that she married Curly on the same night she met him?
1: I'm sorry, Pat. Yeah, I think I think that's a good I think that's a good uh, judgment of her. And that everybody in this whole in this whole book, nobody in this whole book is perfect. Correct. And they all have they all have some sort of I don't want to say they're all broken in some way or another because that's just as sad and cliche as saying anything else. Mm -hmm. But there's something there's every everybody who is real has something that there is essentially wrong with them um, in that way or they're Mm -hmm. flawed flawed. That's the word I was looking for. She is flawed. Yeah. And that that is probably one of her one of her bigger flaws. Is she she does not have the best self esteem, so she ended up with a guy like Curly because perhaps, you know, here in this kind of hole of a town, he's the best thing to come along. Mm-hmm. You know, so I gotta take my chances when I can get it because the only thing I've got going for me, look at me. You know, like maybe it's that sort of scenario, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and she regrets it a little bit and uh especially especially considering the way he treats her
0: but he kept his hand in vaseline don't you want your i was gonna say don't you want your man to do that but, do you <laughs> one hand would be all rough and that that'd be strange
1: yeah is that a, um when i was like was 14 uh-huh. Fourteen when I read this. He kept his hand in Vaseline. In his glove, yeah. In his glove. Yep. Ninth grade boys. Oh boy. Yeah. You know the direction in which they're I going. Did. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm like yeah. uh twenty five years later, I'm like maybe? Yeah. We were right back then? I don't know. That was that got a few more than a few chuckles. Yeah. Than it did because because we're ninth grade boys Mm -hmm. and you've taught middle school boys and you know how, you know, they think, and I teach 10th grade boys and they haven't changed very much either. Mm -hmm. Um, so to to just kind of start bringing us home here, the last question we had between the two of us, um, was, (laughs) is this a true and beautiful story? And I'll add the question that I kind of, um, want to answer with every, really every episode that we do, uh, is this something that's worth its reputation? Does it hold up? Is it something we should still teach? Is it something it's, is it still required reading? So so it's a multifaceted question there. So go.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I uh, I showed my hand a little bit at the beginning at the mm-hmm. top of this hour um, that I feel like it is a beautiful story. Um, I I think it's not only this companionship this oddball companionship mm-hmm. that you wouldn't expect to see these two men together, but you know, having a pretty strong relationship, I would say, not without his struggles, um, a brotherhood or friendship, um, one taking care of the other and both of them playing for a future. I think that's just a, a wonderful idea. Uh, but for me, you know, the beauty comes in George never abandoning Lenny. And then at the very end, him, again, taking ownership, um, of him and, uh, yeah, putting him down. Um, which I think, you know, I sort of wonder, would this have happened had uh, Candy's dog not been put down by somebody else and not by Candy? Yeah. Because um, I, I think that may have played a little bit in, in George's mind. Um, but even in that tragic act, I, I see, you know, there being beauty in him saying, you know, tell me about the rabbit. So, you know, the last image in, in Lenny's mind is, is something that he was going to do. Or was thinking he will do with yeah. George. Uh, so that's why I, I do feel like it's a it's a beautiful story. Um, I also think it is a true a true story. Um, I think this is something that I could certainly see happening. I think we see threads of it. Like, like I said, you know, when I was in uh, elementary school, you know, I saw this sort of companionship. I feel like we are in a day and age now um where we see people um ha- whether we've progressed enough to to help the uh, emotionally or mentally handicapped i can't necessarily say because like i said i do see people out on the side of the road and you know you go under a bridge and and there are people there um that have no place to go uh so i feel like it it's, it's it takes from the facts of life and even though you know this was written 60 years before now, I think that these things like you could literally just republish this um, Mm -hmm. and not change anything really, except maybe, I guess, some of the terms. And it would be like, yeah, this totally makes sense. This stuff is happening.
1: Yeah. And I mean, institutionally, I think we have progressed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Men like Lenny, uh, many of them were locked away. True. Um, In in many cases, many of them were, or if they were not, they were not very well provided for, you know, as children. Uh, They were, they were, granted, George and Lenny are kind of on the outskirts of society anyway. Mm -hmm. But they were essentially outcasts. They were forgotten about. They were. They were not phys- – sometimes they were physically put down, but like, you know, in many cases, they were put away. They were something that we did not admit was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so institutionally and in, and in, in terms of, of of what society can do for these people, we do have a lot more compassion than we did 80 years ago. But there is still this attitude um, if you take the mentally challenged part out of it of their – essentially these two people who are unemployed or underemployed and they're also – Homeless to a certain extent, you know they're 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 hobos. Um, there is still a large swath of people in this country who do view that as their own doing. Yeah, and and that's. I mean, I'm getting a little more probably getting again. I'm trying not to project my own views on it. too much, but that gets me frustrated when you know I've been raised to be compassionate <laughs> in that sense. And and yes, there are people who. Do do this to themselves, um, because of addiction or something mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, there are many, and we saw it over the course of the last, you know, almost last decade with with a recession that happened, where people were losing jobs and homes and retirements and things left and right because of circumstances that were beyond their control. And George and Lenny are the victims in in many ways of the same sort of. Um, of problem where they mm-hmm. they were in a, in an economic period that was just was even worse, and uh, so yeah. But I, I agree with you. You could very well play this today, or you could very well just publish today as it is. And and um, and I think honestly, you know, it's on the high, it's it's in the high school canon or middle school. It's in it's in the canon for 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 secondary school, and I think it deserves its place. Um, I'm good. This is going to sound so stupid, but part of it is because of its length. We teach a generation with incredibly short attention spans. Yeah. And there's another book that I, that I, there's a couple of other books that, that I think are worthy of their place in the canon that also are very, very short. And I think it serves that, I think, and, and of Mice and Men is one of them. I think it serves it really well because it's easy to comprehend. Mm-hmm. And then you can jump to something like The Grapes of Wrath. Or something like this could be this could be a gateway in, but it is something that is is so easy to digest and is so very straightforward that people of many people at many levels can definitely um, understand it, uh, which is why it's a standard. It is not an it is not specifically like an honors class standard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. Um, you know, it, it's not like we we would be giving students *Beloved* or something, which is which is an amazing novel, but yet, but *Beloved* yeah. is but *Beloved* is dense, and if yeah. and if you are not reading at that level, you, it's going to go clear your head. Steinbeck wasn't writing like that in this novel, and it and it and I think that's one of the reasons it just appeal it, it has an appeal to everybody, and it is very very easily understood by everybody, and everybody can feel anybody can really read this and feel that they can engage in the conversation about it, and I think that's really important a lot of times. For mm-hmm. literature that we that we read and we teach,
0: absolutely. Yeah, I think it is more accessible than than something else potentially. I also think that almost the language, which I, I think we or you had maybe obliquely um, referenced the fact that you know is on the banned books list mm-hmm. and. The, one of the main, re- I was, you know, skimming through that, and there's sort of the repeated, <laughs> the repeated reason was because, yeah. of, because of its language, um, obviously using the n-word and and taking the Lord's name in vain and everything, and I think, well, you know, I do bristle at the, at both of those. I think it's also good to not forget. The past, I, I think mm-hmm. you know. Sometimes we are ashamed of it and want to be like, "Oh, let's not talk about it." But when you do that, I think you honestly don't learn from it, and and you sort of. I think it's good to bring up the fact that we were there once, but look at how we've grown as a you know as, as a yeah. collective people, and so and and I think it it makes sense because of its context. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, perhaps it like I said, you know, if you were to transplant this in 2016, I think the language would probably change, and some some of the character um, ethnicities would probably change. Um, but I think for that time period, like that is, I think it's authentic to the time period. So uh-huh. you shouldn't sort of poo poo it because there's bad language. I think, hey man, this is true at that time. So you need to have this sort of picture. And I think it's important as we're like pushing, you know closer into the future and, and for kids, especially now to get a viewpoint. Cause I mean, they read to kill a mockingbird and you know, the, the same thing is true of what's going on in there and, and chains and whatnot. So I think it's important to sort of yeah. keep the, the past relevant.
1: Yeah. And and especially since Steinbeck was writing contemporary to that time too, he's mm-hmm. not he's not going back and writing a novel about something right. that happened in past And and his excuses, Well, people really talk like that back then. He was writing about the contemporary <laughs> society. Yes. So so yeah, and it, it does and it makes it more three dimensional. You're right, and then and then you can have the conversation about how much we have changed in the way we speak. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, so that that'll do it um, for mice and men. Uh, now. The next book is uh, is your pick it so and, pick. and I don't know what it is and this is one of the this is one of the fun things about the every end of every episode we we work the two of us work off lists um, we've we've highlighted on the list what we've both read already or what we have in common or what we're really looking to read and stuff like that and then um, uh, I went first so I chose the book and then um, you chose the book for next time but you decided, but we've both decided um, we're not going to reveal it to each other until the end of the episode. So with that out of the way, what are we going to talk about next month?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I just want to say before I uh, re- uh, reveal what it is that Tom is talking about my list. His list is primarily made up of books that uh, he read when he's going to school, correct? Yes. And my list is uh, I am a huge fan of Gilmore Girls. And the daughter, uh, Rory Gilmore, was a voracious reader. And so, around 2005 or so, I decided to create uh, my own Rory Gilmore reading list. And it's basically <laughs> any book that um, she was meant, she mentioned reading, or you saw her reading, or something like that. So it's just it's tons. I don't know the exact number. I'm slowly making my way through. But that that's my list that I'm. Uh, I'm uh, taking my books off of. With that being said, however, the book that I'm about to uh, reveal is neither on my list nor
1: (laughs) Oh, great.
0: (laughs) But it's a play. So I felt like it'd be okay because plays are shorter. Mm -hmm. And, It's actually one of my favorite plays. It's by Tennessee Williams. It is The Glass Menagerie.
1: Okay. So we'll be back in about a month. Until then, we'll we'll be trying to put some – create a home for the page um, for the book uh, on a page or or a Facebook group or with an email address or something. So that will be forthcoming. But um, if you want to email either of us, you can use our – for the moment – you can use uh, either of our email addresses that are associated with one of our other shows. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And I believe you are Oracle at gmail.com. That is correct. And we will, we'll, in, in the future, we'll have a more. Um, more specific appropriate place to, to send feedback. Uh, and uh, I know it's only one episode, but if you enjoyed this and you would like to spread the word, please do. Um, and also if you would like to leave us a nice review on iTunes, that would be really very nice of you. So until then, uh, Stella, thanks for hopping along on this very first episode.
0: It was an amazing adventure.
1: Okay. And uh, we will see you soon.
0: Keep on reading. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you make that noise i could have said fly on read on babs lovers <sighs> do you want to come up with a catchphrase
1: <laughs> i don't know i think i'm just gonna leave that in good night everybody